Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. I, and I've mentioned this before, I uh, grew up in the great state of Indiana and uh, as a basketball fan. And come on, go Hoosiers. And um, while 49 states in the 90s were worshiping this guy named Michael Jordan, I had Reggie Miller. And uh, Reggie Miller was a, an incredible trash talker, also an incredible player, but an incredible trash talker. And, uh, and, I mean, that middle picture says it all. He had a rivalry, not just with the New York Knicks, but specifically one fan for the New York Knicks. His name is Spike Lee. He's a movie director. And so growing up, I, uh, I hated the Knicks. I hated Spike Lee. I hated all of his movies. I don't know if I've seen them, but I knew that I hated any movie that Spike Lee had. And so much of where this rivalry between a fan and a player came from was in 1995, it was the Eastern Conference uh, finals, semifinals, and it was the Pacers versus the Knicks in New York City. And there's 18 seconds left, and the Pacers are down 99 to 105. So down six with 18 seconds left, which in basketball world is like almost game over. And uh, please mind the 1995 graphics, but I want to show you the end of this game, the last 18 seconds. <laughs> I loved Reggie. Uh, and there was all, there was, I mean, that was amazing. There was a ton of buzz around, like, especially Indianapolis after that game, and, uh, and there was lots of questions and, um, I mean, tons of, like, rallies going on. There was one question that nobody was asking, which I think we could ask, is um, in the first, and here's some math, in the first 2,862 seconds of that game, Reggie scored 23 points. Okay, 23 points in 2,862 seconds. And then in the next nine seconds, he scored eight points. Which begs the question, why didn't Reggie just try that hard the whole game? Right? (laughs) Was that the question everybody was asking in Indianapolis? Like, everyone's mad at him because he didn't try that. You didn't, why didn't you score eight points every nine seconds for the whole game? It wouldn't have even got that close. No, of course not. Nobody's asking that question. Nobody is asking Reggie why he didn't try so hard because he is one of the greatest competitors to play the game of basketball. And still, like anybody else, there is a level of elevation that can come when you are desperate. There's a level of elevation in performance, and this isn't just a sports thing. I mean, I wish I was as athletic as I am when I'm like being chased by a dog. (laughs) Adrenaline's real or a puppy, (laughs) if I'm honest. Desperation is one of the greatest motivators, not just in sports, but it is in school, right? Where's my procrastinators? Uh, It's a great motivator in work. It's a great motivator in relationships. I mean, how many times have you heard the story of they were married for 15 years and uh, it just got so bad and it was hanging on by a thread and then miraculously through counseling and through different things, uh, the marriage was restored. It's because we can do things at a higher level oftentimes when we are desperate. Desperation is an incredibly powerful motivator. It's incredibly powerful to get us to do certain things that we didn't think we could do before. The other thing is, and I know you've experienced this, 
is that desperation isn't really like a sought after characteristic in our world. Like being in need, being humble, being desperate for something isn't exactly like a quality that people elevate in our world. However, it seems like God's different. It seems like God actually honors uh, our humility, our desperation, right? And if, if you have kids, you know this, like any good father, when his kids are desperate and asking him and admit their need, any good father is going to come in and immediately meet that need, immediately give his kids what they want. Because a good father sees desperation not as a weakness, but actually as something to move on. And the problem with desperation in our world is that humility just isn't really a thing for us. Like humility and desperation go hand in hand, but humility isn't one of those values that's often touted or bragged upon. You don't put that on your resume. Uh, because humility is something that seems like it's worth it in the kingdom of God, but not necessarily in our world. And so um, this morning, I, I'm very excited. We're taking a break from Acts. We're going to finish that in the fall. But we're uh, starting a new series called Crazy Faith. And today's on desperation and humility, but crazy faith because there are things in Jesus following that to the outside world kind of look crazy. I mean, if, if we're going to really go after Jesus, there are going to be some things that we're going to do. If we're following what the word says, if we're following what he asked of us, there's going to be some things in our life that look a little bit crazy. And so over the next uh, month and throughout August, we're going to be hearing actually from a, a number of voices, um, and they are, it's going to be great. The next three weeks are going to be fire. You do not want to miss the next three weeks. But we're going to be hearing from a few different voices and, and we're answering this question, if we're really following Jesus, what is going to look crazy in our faith to the outside world? Because the fact is that all of us are being discipled by something or someone. It's not a question of like, oh, am I being discipled? Uh, it's kind of a Christianese term. Am I being poured into by someone or by a good church? The, the reality is all of us are being discipled by something or someone. The question is, is it by society or by culture, or by the world's values, or is it by the way of Jesus? Because those are very, very different. And it's possible that being discipled by culture and being discipled by Jesus would lead you into two very different directions. And so we're just asking the question over the next few weeks, where would the world be telling me to go this way, but Jesus would actually be asking me to go that way? Because if you're not being discipled into the way of Jesus, we're going to be discipled by a pop culture icon, a politician, the ethos of the age. We're going to be discipled by someone, but we want to, be cho we want to choose as a church, as a family, to be following uh, really hard and really closely in the way of Jesus. And choosing humility and choosing desperation is probably the foundation of this. It's one of the things the world would say is crazy, but Jesus just says, no, that's the way of my kingdom. And Jesus, uh, this is not argued by Christians or non-Christians, uh, everyone agrees Jesus is likely the most famous man that has ever walked the earth. Um, and so whether you believe in him or not, he was a historical figure, lots of religious and non-religious writings can attest to that. But Jesus, the most famous man that ever walked the earth, uh, was a teacher, it's one of the things he did. And he preached a few sermons, but there's one 
that got a lot of notoriety. It's in Matthew 5 through 7. It's called the Sermon on the Mount. And, uh, and I would argue it's the most famous sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And the most famous part of that sermon is the very beginning. It's this, the Christian word is uh, the Beatitudes. Blessed are the blank. So in Matthew 5, you have the most famous man who's ever lived preaching the most famous sermon that's ever been preached. And the most famous part of that is at the very beginning. And yeah, I'm totally letting this build, letting the drama happen. And Jesus, a masterful communicator, could have started off the, the revelation bomb he was about to drop anyway. And maybe more amateur preachers would open with like a sports analogy or a video. <laughs> but Jesus chooses his words really wisely, and he says this in Matthew 5.3. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Most famous man, most famous sermon, and he starts off by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And, and this phrase, and maybe it confuses you, it confused me for a really long time, because it sounded like uh, it was some kind of economic statement. And being poor in spirit isn't so much talking about economically poor, but it's talking about recognizing your need for God. There's another translation that says, blessed are those who recognize their need for God. It's this idea that you recognize, you realize that you are spiritually bankrupt without God. And the world would say, like, that's a really bad place to be. But Jesus says, no, 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 that's like where blessedness starts. Blessedness starts when you're the most empty and desperate and humble before me. This is in your notes, and I think this is the big idea today. Being poor in spirit means to carry a deep humility and to reject self-sufficiency. It means to carry a deep humility and to reject self-sufficiency. So America's like killing it at this, right? Right, we're being discipled by something. And so as America and as we as Western people continue to uh, promote independence, uh, being on our own, uh, not needing anything, not leaning into anyone, we're also noticing that the feelings of isolation, loneliness, are skyrocketing. And I'm wondering if those two things are correlated. So here's the, the big idea. In Matthew 5, um, this is about 2,000 years ago, it's not cool now to need anything. That's not different back then. Like, independence was still a value, maybe less so, but it still wasn't cool to be in need. It wasn't cool to be empty. And so Jesus is preaching something that would have still been very hard to hear in that day because being in need is bad, being desperate is bad. And again, we're being discipled by something, and, and here's what the world is saying. This is... Uh, an example. This is pre-Christian Kanye. Kanye says this, I am God's vessel, but my greatest pain in life is that I will never be able to see myself perform live. Isn't that good? So the gospel according to Kanye says to be full of yourself, and the gospel according to Jesus says, no, no, no. Blessedness starts by being empty. I have more if I can indulge myself. The gospel according to Jason Derulo. Yeah, I'm feeling good tonight. Finally doing me, and it feels so right. Oh, it's time to do the things I like. A little older, let's go Destiny's Child. The shoes on my feet, I bought it. The clothes I'm wearing, I bought it. The rock I'm rocking, I bought it. Because I depend on me. Uh, even older, Brittany, hashtag free Brittany. Uh, I'm stronger than yesterday. 
Now it's nothing but my way. I saw Gen Z over here laughing. Uh, your hero, your generation's hero, Billie Eilish, says this. She says, uh, I'm not your friend or anything, dang. You think that you're the man. I think, therefore, I am. Get that. And she's quoting a French philosopher here. She's quoting Descartes, and she says, I think, therefore, I am. And you can almost right now, you can hear Gen X and boomers sighing smugly. You guys might be the worst of all. Here's your man, Frank. <laughs> Regrets, I've had a few. But then again, too few to mention. I did what I had to do, and I saw it through without exemption. I planned each charted course, each careful step along the byway, and more, much more than this, Frank says that I did it my way. We're being discipled by somebody, by the songs that we listen to, by the pop culture references that we hear, and these things are pointing us in one direction, and kind of funny, it's always funny to just read a song lyric, but also very true that it seems like Jesus is saying something differently. And Jesus says, no, blessed are the poor in spirit. And the problem with being poor in spirit is it says that you're in need. And Jesus says it's actually at that point that blessedness can start. So this is the theme of Jesus' ministry. It's the cross-shaped world. We talk a lot about that phrase. Uh, the cross-shaped world says that what actually seemed like defeat is victory. What seemed like death was life. What happened on Friday was redeemed on Sunday. This is the whole message of Jesus. He brings something in and he says, what looks like this actually is that. And what he says is being desperate, being humble, being empty, that's actually the key to more of God. That's where your spiritual life begins. Every other faith would say like, no, you gotta get somewhere. And Jesus says, I want, I want you broken. I, I'll take you as you are. I want you humble. I need you desperate for me. And then... That's when I'll move. And I believe this is the word. This is the key to our next season as a family. I want to be humble and desperate before God. I want to be so empty and so in need of him that he has to show up. So for the rest of uh, this morning, I want to be in Genesis 28. Uh, this is a story of Jacob. He's one of the patriarchs. So he is Abraham's grandson. And, and we read a lot in Genesis 12. We talk about the Abrahamic covenant quite often uh, where God promises Abraham certain things. And Abraham was a, a man, I mean, he made some mistakes, but a man of great faith. His son and grandson really messed some things up. And what happens, we're going to pick up in 28. What happened in 27 is Jacob, the younger son, stole his older brother's blessing. And, and that's a big deal back then. Uh, you got like twice the inheritance as the older son, twice the blessing, uh, it's something I've been trying to talk my dad into doing for a while. Uh, but Jacob takes advantage of his dad being blind and steals it from Esau, his older and his stronger brother. And so now Esau's trying to kill Jacob, and Jacob goes on the run. His mom says, you need to get out of here because your brother's going to kill you. Jacob is about as desperate as he's ever been in his life. And so Genesis 28, it says that Jacob left where he was staying, where his home was, in Beersheba, and set out for Haran. When he reached a certain place, he stopped for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones there, he put it under his head and lay down to sleep. And it says that he stopped in a certain place. They don't even list it at this point. Like, it's the middle of nowhere. He started in Beersheba, he's going to Haran. He's in the middle of nowhere right now. And it says that he had a dream in which he saw the stairway resting on the earth. The stairway of heaven resting on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. 
and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. There above it stood the Lord, and he said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. I will give you and your descendants the land on which you are lying. Your descendants will be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out over the west and the east and to the north and to the south. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you and through your offspring. And so catch this. Jacob is in the midst of uh, his most desperate, empty, likely shameful part of his life. I mean, he wasn't like coming off of a big spiritual win here. He's broken and he's in the middle of nowhere. And he's laying on somebody else's ground as a fugitive and God shows up and it changes everything. And God says, where you're laying now, fugitive, Jacob, man who's on the run, this one day is going to be yours. And he encounters Jacob where he's at. And it says, when Jacob awoke from his sleep, he thought, surely the Lord is in this place. And I was not aware of it. He was afraid and he said, how awesome is this place? This is none other than the house of God. This is the gate of heaven. Early the next morning, Jacob took the stone that he had placed under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on top of it. He called that place Bethel, or Bethel, though the city used to be called Luz. So he takes this place. It was this city called Luz. I mean, not like a big city. It's actually outside the city. And so he's in the middle of nowhere, and he says, oh, this is the house of God. And he calls it Bethel. Beth meaning house, El meaning God. He says, this is where God met me. And you can even pick up, if you read this, like, and you kind of read between the lines, it seems like uh, he's confused at how this could happen here. He says, surely the Lord is in this place, and I was not aware. Now, how can the grandson of Abraham not be looking for God wherever he's going? Like, this guy has a heritage of faith. How can he not be on the lookout for God? And he's so confused because he didn't think God could show up there. I mean, he's broken, he's empty, he's on the run. And and we read in Genesis 27, his mom actually says, don't go there. Don't go here. Don't go to godless Canaan. He's in the middle of Canaan where God would surely never show up. And Jacob says, I guess God is here. And I was not even aware He was confused because I think he thought maybe God would only show up in his high moments or in his spiritual moments or at the consecrated altars or the time that he's making sacrifice or during his daily prayer time. I think Jacob was a little confused because he showed up in godless Canaan as he was on the run from something that he shouldn't have been doing, empty and alone. God was, or Jacob was not aware that God could show up in his empty, desperate, or sinful moments. Jacob seems thoroughly confused that a God like the God he served would show up in those kinds of times. This is right after sin. He's on the run, and Jacob is thoroughly confused. And, uh, and the thing I felt this morning, as I wanted to go to Genesis 28, is um, I want to encourage us. I mean, even in like challenging or strange times for our church family, or maybe there's strange or difficult things going on in your life, I want to encourage you that God can show up anytime he wants. And God can show up in the middle of nowhere. And God can show up when you least expect it. See, we often, I often, I won't put this on you, but I often assume God's going to show up usually when I'm like sitting in my chair reading my Bible. Like that's the holy moment, right? That's when God's going to speak. 
He's not going to do it as I'm like going through my day-to-day life. He's going to speak when I like give him that part of my morning. But God seems to be saying something different. He's like, no, no, no. I want that. I want that consecrated time. I want that time with me. And I can show up whenever I want. See, God can show up in the middle of a coffee shop when you have your Bible and your coffee and your journal and your Instagram, of course. God can show up in the middle of a coffee shop. Or for me, he can show up at a taco shop just as easily. God can show up at either place. Do you know that God can show up just as easily in a Christian private school as he can in a public school? In a church, uh, in Liberty Church or on Liberty Street? Do you know God can show up in the middle, the Middle East or the Midwest? He can show up in the basement of an old church or the underground church in China? Did you know God can just as easily show up on a Sunday morning as he can on a Friday night? That he could show up at a seminary or at a bar? That he could show up at a Bible club or at a strip club? Do you know God could show up at a church picnic or at a soup kitchen? That he could show up at FCA or UC? He could show up at a church cathedral or the Shakespeare Auditorium? Did you know God could just as easily show up in your house group as he could in your cubicle? Did you know God could show up just as easily in the prayer room as he could in your living room? Do you know God loves to show up, not just at the baptismal, but at the water cooler? That he could show up at his house, a church, or he could show up at the White House? Do you know that God could show up at a temple full of people, or his specialty, he loves to show up at a grave that's empty? See, we're often looking for God in those sacred moments, and we should. But we should also be aware he might be in the secular as well. He might be in those moments when we least expect him. He might actually show up to godless Canaan, not just at Beersheba or Haran. And I don't want to be like Jacob. Not that it was awful, but I don't want to be in that place that says, man, I didn't think God would show up here. I mean, he's here, and I was not aware. He loves to show up in the moments when we most need him, not necessarily in the moments that are the most spiritual. I believe that God, from Matthew 5, 3, honors the moments that we are at our most desperate and humble and empty. He loves to come when his kids admit that they need him. Guys, that's the word for this church in this next season. We need God. And not just because of a transition. Like, we needed God before that. We need God And we want him to come. We don't want to do church void of him. We don't want to program him out of a community or of a family. There's so many aspects of this place that I think are different than like other communities or other things that are going on in the city. But shame on us if the one thing that's not there is his presence. I think he loves to come when we admit that we actually need him. Um, this weekend, I, we, Catherine and I, we drove to Chicago, and uh, I don't know if you've ever done the drive to Chicago, but um, it's like North Indiana, you start to see a bunch of windmills. It's usually when you start to smell Purdue University. <laughs> True story. Uh, but in Northern Indiana, there's like this, ma- I mean, hundreds, like you can drive for miles, and all you see are like flat farmland and these giant uh, wind turbines. And this was a, like a massive project that the government did back in 2007. And they spent millions, like millions of dollars. And the idea was each one of these wind turbines, I mean, they're huge, could power like four to 500 homes. 
And, and so engineers were brought in, and business people were brought in, and literally every single detail that could be calculated was calculated. Everything that could be controlled was controlled. They put it in the north part of the state because it's flatter, and there's no buildings, and there's no hills. And everything that they could design, they designed. They just left one variable that obviously they couldn't control, but it hinged all on this variable. It's that the wind has to blow. <laughs> like these are 160,000 pounds. Like you can't manually crank them yourself. Everything was designed to perfection with just like one slightly large variable is that this thing is a complete waste of money <laughs> if the wind doesn't blow. And I think it's the same for us. I mean, unfortunately, and this might be bad news at the end of a message, but we can't cause God to move. We can't cause God to come here. We can't tell him what to do. The only thing we can do in the whole uh, basis of the Christian walk is that we want to set ourselves up to be with him and to follow him. We want to pray, plan, repent. We want to walk in humility. We want to walk in unity. We want to walk in transparency. We are after, I mean, the big thing we're after is both revival in our hearts. I want God to awaken my heart to more of him. And we're after renewal in our city. The problem is we can't cause that. It's like everything could be to perfection except for that one variable that we just can't control. Our desperation can't cause God to move. Our humility can't cause God to move. Unfortunately, all we can do is set things up. All we can do is prepare and plan like God's going to move, but we can't cause him to do it. But here's the thing about northern Indiana. The wind always blows. The wind is always blowing in northern Indiana. And it changes directions. It changes speed. But the wind is always blowing in northern Indiana. The wind farm has been a massive success. It's been amazing. Because, yes, they couldn't control one variable, but the variable was the most consistent thing of the whole process, is that we know the wind's going to blow in northern Indiana. And man, I believe, I know our God is a God who's always on the move. He's always on the move. And so that means that there are aspects that we can't control of him. And yeah, I'm telling us that we should be desperate and humble before him, but it's not going to guarantee anything. But also, it's kind of like that variable that you know is going to come through. The same way the wind blows in northern Indiana, God is on the move in our city. God is on the move in our church. It's just up to us if we want to be ready for him to move, if we want to welcome him into our lives, or if we want to let it go on by. There was no distinct change in the wind patterns of 2006 to 2007. The only difference was that there was something there to capture the thing that was already happening. 2006, it was just a waste of energy. In 2007, after the prayer, maybe prayer, but the planning and the building and the engineering, all of a sudden, this starts to be moved into something that was useful and positive. And so if we're after personal revival, if we're after renewal in our city, all we can do is have a posture of preparation. And I believe the foundation of that posture is Matthew 5.3. It's poor in spirit. It's being desperate. It's being humble before him. It's us acknowledging that we want more of God. This is probably the big thing I've been saying for the last few weeks. I just want to be a part of a church. I want to be a part of a community that wants more of God. And I want to acknowledge that it might cost us something. 
It's going to cost us something to be following right after the heels of Jesus, but you won't regret it. You won't regret giving up those things to follow after him. Um, band can come up. And I want to I wanna start uh, to worship from a place of seeking uh, revival both in our hearts, renewal in our city. We want to seek the good of the city that we've been put in. We love that we're kind of in the hub of the city. And uh, 15 years, 1,500 years after Jacob, um, God starts to speak to a prophet, Isaiah. And, uh, and he says this. This is what God says. And I think it's still relevant today. It's relevant for what's happening in our community. Isaiah 43, 19 says, Look, I'm about to do something new. Even now it is coming. Do you not see it? Indeed, I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. Man, is there anybody else who's ready for God to do a new thing? I know we're not quite a talkback church, but is there anyone else that's ready for God to do a new thing in your life? Is there anybody else that's ready to be a part of a church that maybe we can't control it down to like the finest detail, but if God's going to move, if God's going to blow through the area of over the Rhine, if he's going to blow through Cincinnati, I want to put up a sail that starts to catch that wind. I want to put up a sail that starts to leverage the fact that God's already doing what we knew he was going to do. Now it's just up to us to be in a place to receive it. I don't, I, I don't know if you've like done much church history or reading. Um, I've read a little bit about church revivals. I mean, it's really fascinating. And I love it. I think we can learn so much from it. And I don't want to live out of somebody else's revival. I don't want to just talk about what happened in the first great awakening. I don't want to hear about what happened in the second great awakening. I don't want to just hear the stories from the Jesus people movement. I think we can learn from it. And I don't see why God couldn't do it again. I don't see why God couldn't use a people that are humble and broken before him, but so ready for him to move. And I know it sounds crazy, and we're new, and we're in transition, and we're kind of small, but I believe that God has no reason to not do what he's done in other places as he would in 2021 in the city of Cincinnati. And so as we go into worship, here's what I want to implore us to do. And I want to worship like we really believe it. I want to worship like we actually believe God might move. I want to worship like we actually believe God would revive us. I want our church to take a posture of humility, not loftiness, of purity, not a facade. I want to get to a place where I start to fan the flame of God, not just settle for staleness. City Church, I want us to be desperate for God. It's the foundation of where every other thing starts, is if we just start to admit we need him, we want him. And so I want to position ourselves for revival both in our hearts and renewal in our city. And we can't cause God to move, but if he does, I want in. If he does move, I I want in. And I want to see a church that's in it as well. So let's cry out to God. Let's ask that he would revive not only our hearts, but that he would renew our city.